We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hi, my name is Tim, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is 12-31-2019. I do have a sponsor. I do have a home group. I've sponsored other men in this program. I do also regularly attend meetings, and I do have uh, actually a couple of different home groups. I can get into that a little bit more later, and I can explain sort of my path to sobriety. But first off, I was born in Chicago, Illinois. I spent a good part of my childhood in Chicago, I think up until I was about eight or nine years old. My family ended up moving to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I like to call most of my childhood in Ann Arbor sort of what I remember the most. But some things I do remember from Chicago, I was raised by a Catholic mother, so I actually did have a fair amount of religious upbringing for a short period of time there. It was never something that was really important to my dad, but I did go to church regularly. and I did have my first communion, but I, I don't think I was ever confirmed. So I spent a lot of time going to Sunday school and other things like that. Really, really took me thinking back to actually remember that because I, uh, I like to think of myself as someone who's kind of been an agnostic for most of their life. But thinking back on it, it's just really not true. Um, long story short, though, we, my family moved to Ann Arbor, and uh, that's where I ended up going to school, meeting most of my friends, even friends who are you know still close today. I like to think that for the most part, I had a pretty regular childhood. Both my parents are very loving. They're still together. They've always played a big role in my life. I do have one brother, and we all get along pretty well. So they're you know in terms of of like dysfunctionality in the household, I don't think I had too much to. Uh, point towards where my alcoholism came from. Uh, there is one thing that kind of stands out that I've learned in this program as is something that was really on my mind a lot as a child. And that was that I had this very minor disability. So I don't exactly know what happened, or I think even the physicians aren't entirely sure uh, what happened. But basically, my left leg, the the muscles in my left leg, they never quite developed as quickly as my right leg. So I sort of had this lack of strength in my left side and sort of just a little bit lagging. So at some point in my childhood, I became very aware of that. I did see some physicians when I was younger. For the most part, um, from what I've been told, is no one thought there was anything too serious about it. It was going to be something that I wouldn't really have to deal with throughout my life. But, you know, something I would notice as I grew up was just kind of lagging behind a bit. Somewhere down the line, I became extremely aware of that part of me. And I just became very acutely aware of what others thought of me. I think when I first started in sobriety and having told my story a number of times, you know, I always left that part out. I'm not sure exactly why, but I'd like to think that it didn't play a role in my alcoholism. But as I've gotten some more sobriety under my belt, starting to think that this this constant looking around and wondering if I'm different or if people are looking at me different, if it's noticeable to people, 
how do I appear in public when I play sports, things like that. You know, that, that really did control a big part of my life when I was younger. And I think it's really important that I mention that because many of my, my processes with dealing with drugs and alcohol and other emotions kind of turned towards this obsessive thinking as I got older. And I think it did kind of start with this basis of always having a fear around what others thought of me. But going back to when I was probably somewhere in eight, nine, 10 in that range, when I moved to Michigan, I was playing a lot of sports and I was actually like very good at sports, you know, pretty stand out in hockey. And and so if you, you think about that, it, it definitely points to the issue with my leg not really being a major factor. And I, I think for a period there, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything that I thought of too much. I was always kind of aware of it. I did have some things where it was harder for me to cut one way or the other. And so it was something where I maybe favored one of my sides, but not not anything that, that most people noticed. And from finding out later in life, as I was, was actually able to share this stuff and, and talk to my friends who were, were around me at that time, from what they've told me, no one really knew. So it, it definitely was something where as a kid, I internalized a lot and I sort of made it to be this big deal. And I think to some degree, maybe it is something that that is still a big deal to me that I haven't fully unpacked yet, but it's impressive to me that it's even something I can talk about now. So loving family, but my parents did not drink. They weren't alcoholics. They weren't opposed to drinking. They just weren't big drinkers and didn't really find it necessary. Uh, Similar to my brother, he a couple years older than me, but he was never a big drinker. I mean, maybe your typical high school shit, a couple beers here and there, but nothing, nothing crazy for him. So, you know, by the time I was getting into trouble and, and being a, a young punk, it was definitely sort of like the the standout person in the family for, for doing all these things that were kind of frowned upon. And it's no fault to my parents too. I mean, I think they raised me the best they could. And uh, I know that I was a handful I didn't start drinking at a super young age from what, you know, from what I hear in the program, but I think the average drinker out there, it was a pretty young age. I think I had my first drink in high school, I believe freshman year. So probably somewhere around 14 or so. I don't remember the first time that I drank, but I do remember sort of the first time that I got drunk. It was just tailgating before a sporting event in high school. And I just remember being able to go into the stands and, and kind of hide out and, you know, have no one know. And I just remember it being a ton of fun. It wasn't a lot of drinks. It was probably a few beers, I believe. Coors Light, if I, if I remember correctly. I just remember thinking this just really enhances my time. I do feel like from a, like a popularity standpoint and from like a where did I fit in type thing that I, I did struggle with that too. You know, I, I've always made friends really easily. And so I... I did have a lot of friends growing up, both that were sort of geekier and not jockey, but I also, going into high school, was friends with a lot of jocks and playing sports. And so I had this really wide range of friends, but I did kind of feel like I had to keep everything separate. I, I either was the coolest kid in this group or I didn't belong in that group. It was just one of those things where it kind of made me think that at some point everyone was going to discover me, you know, something with my leg would come out and I just, something was always, was always on the verge of, of being discovered. And I never, I never felt like I fit in with the cool kids. You know, I did feel like I was too cool for for the not cool kids. So that's something I've never really shared my story either, but I did some 
some thinking before I, I came on this on this podcast today. And I was just thinking you hear a lot about people talking about the differences they felt or how they never fit in. And I always just approached it with what what are you talking about? I, I do feel like I fit in. I, I just at some point became an alcoholic and the more honest that I am with myself and the more I look back and, and really see kind of how I acted as a as a young individual, I definitely had some some issues that I I just wasn't always honest. You know, I just could didn't feel like I could be honest with my closest friends. And I put up sort of this facade and sort of a show to fit into different groups. And like many people finding alcohol and finding parties and stuff, that was a very easy way for me to kind of break the barrier with different, with different groups of friends. And it was something that I just loved right off the bat. I wasn't drinking alcoholically right off the bat. I think it was something that I dabbled with more or less just a few beers here and there for freshman year. And then sophomore year is when I really started to kind of pick things up. I do have drugs as part of my story, but I'm not going to talk too much about that. Through high school, I was someone who smoked weed every day. At some point in time, I was getting together. We had a, growing up in Ann Arbor, it's a, um, it's a very liberal area where there's a lot of kind of free reign given to kids. And for example, I, I had, I believe roughly like 5,000 kids in my high school and there was off campus lunch for an hour. So there was a lot of time, you know, when you just kind of let loose in between school to go out in the parking lot and, you know, drive to McDonald's or something and get in trouble. And there was a lot of days when I just wouldn't come back to school. You know, people would be having midday parties and all sorts of stuff like that where really the only consequence at that time was there'd be an automated message on your on your phone at home that you could get home to and it would say, you know, X person was, you know, did not report attended at this class and click delete and it was no big deal. There wasn't any real consequences. I I was definitely one of those people who started seeing consequences early. I've had some ups and downs in my in my career of drinking and, and partying. And it started with getting in a lot of trouble. There were some periods where I didn't get into a lot of trouble. And then towards the end, I started to get back into a lot of trouble. I think I got arrested for the first time when I was 16. Very fortunate not to have gotten a DUI, but I just was sitting in my car with a couple of buddies and the car was loaded up with all sorts of paraphernalia and cases of beer and bongs and just stuff you're just not supposed to have when you're 16. And that was like almost immediate major issues at home. You know, it was something where my parents went from not even thinking that I drank to getting called to the police station, finding out I had like 20 different items that were illegal for me to have at that time. I remember that was the first time I saw them really, really mad. You know, I think my dad had locked his keys in his car or something and had like broken his window with a hockey stick or something to get his keys out. That or I think he might have just slammed his door so hard the uh the the window cracked. And I just remember thinking, man, I have not seen him that mad. I don't think I've seen him that mad ever since. So definitely carried around a fair amount of of shame and guilt for just thinking like I just terrorized these people's lives um <laughs> for most of my adolescence. It wasn't long after that before I was getting arrested again. Uh, in Michigan in the 2000s, it was a really, it seems like almost a really just big money-making scheme where police would show up at parties and hand out 
these minor in possession of alcohol tickets that meant years or a year or a year plus of probation and second offenses. It was like two years of probation. And there wasn't really anything major that would happen other than your parents would get called. They might take you down to the police station and you'd be picked up. But then you'd be on this probation. You'd basically be in the system where you were on thin ice. And I had gotten two of those very quickly. So I was in this this process of like being breathalyzed monthly, being drug tested monthly. And that went on for, for well over a year uh, or two where it was just constant. But I always seemed to just kind of skate by. Never really got caught with that. I remember, like, I remember actively thinking like, okay, calling this number, when am I going to have to go and plotting around when I could drink or smoke? It was always a scheme to me and I never, never got caught doing it. And for a long time, I just thought that's what people did. There was a lot of kids in my group of friends that were all in the same boat. They were handing these minor obsession of alcohol tickets out left and right. So as you can imagine, there was probably 40 or 50 kids that I hung out with and everyone had the same thing. So I didn't think anything of it. And looking back on it now, maybe it's something I can get to a bit later, but looking back on it now, I always wondered, you know, what did it, what was it about me that made me an alcoholic? You know, all these kids, all these, these friends that I have, many of them are friends today. We all used to drink beer and party during the day. And, you know, how come I'm the, the lucky one who crossed this imaginary line that they speak of, of, of no return? The more I've I've grown in sobriety, I just don't think that's the case. And I think the book does a really good job of explaining, you know, the difference between people who are problem drinkers and real alcoholics and people who one day may be may be alcoholics. And I think that's uh it's really important for me to, to look at that because it doesn't matter why why me. Really, it's just, you know, why not me? You know, the way I, I set myself up with substances was a one-way ticket to trouble. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And I, I remember I got caught so many times I got caught that my mom pulled me aside and said, you know, you you get caught with everything you do. One of my, one of my uncles never got caught doing stuff. And the other one always got caught. And she said, like, you're like him. You get caught with everything you do. And, and I always thought that I grew up thinking, man, I just get caught with everything I do. But the reality of it is not that the reality is that I was drinking all through high school, almost on a daily basis, my senior year. And sure, I got caught a couple times. It's not it's not that I was always getting caught. It's that I was putting myself in these situations frequently. And it just uh, eventually you're bound to get in trouble. So moving on, I uh, I did graduate. I did I did okay in school. Throughout it all, I was always a, a decent student. Not great, not not you know bad, but decent. And I got into a school. I basically did little to no effort to get into it. They did on campus applications, so I basically walked in there. They had my grades already there. They told me I could come in the fall, and I said great. So I did that with a couple of other of my buddies in high school. It's a decent school here in the western part of Michigan. Man, that's when things really took off for me. And this is one of those things where I, I like to think about sort of the waves of, of my drinking and using. And I reflect a lot on the college period of my life because it was one of the times when I was the most out of control I've ever been. And it was also one of the times where I got the most shit done. I got a, a part-time job my freshman year. And so I worked 30 hours at a bank. 
the whole time I was in school. And so I, I always worked 30 hours, which is a, a, a fair amount of work when you're going to school full time as well. And I just partied the whole time. I just drank excessively. You know, when people say they drink alcoholically, you know, I have a hard time differentiating between what alcoholically is and not because I think, yes, I drank a lot and stayed up really late at night and did that probably four or five nights a week. But I also like woke up first thing in the morning and went to class. And I also held a job and had nothing but great relationships at that work. I never was missing a day. I, I worked every Saturday at 8 a.m. So, I mean, I, I partied really hard, but I always got things done. And um, drugs definitely became a little more prevalent then, but it it's important that I mention it in my story as a reminder that I am also an addict and that I am susceptible to really become addicted to anything that, that alters my mind and some things that don't uh, for that matter. But I never stopped drinking and drinking was the most important thing to me. So throughout my period of my substance using, I did dabble in a number of different things, but I put them aside pretty quickly if it became a problem. And I knew that I'd always had drinking. Like that was always, that was always there. And during my period of drinking, I never once stopped drinking and tried sobriety. You know, I, I always thought I'd be the guy who had a cocktail glass in his hand uh, till he was old. But in college, I was sort of like the responsible one, which is wild to say that because I still got in trouble in college. I still created, created issues and, and got in trouble with the law as well. So another one of those tickets I got, I believe it was my third one and got arrested for being far too drunk in public. And ultimately it was just more probation and more problems. And it was something where my, my family and I worked with a lawyer to try and get it lessened, but really it just came down to once again, extended periods of time on probation, which I never got in trouble with. You know, I showed up, I took my drug test, I blew into the breathalyzer and then I moved on about my day and probably went drinking shortly after that. There is uh, something I do want to mention because with this program being so spiritual um, and I, I did mention that I was sort of raised in the, in the Catholic church with my mom and you know, my dad used to always sit there in church and when we would get up to get communion, he would just sit there. He would just stay there. And I always wondered like, man, that's really weird. You know, my dad will just sit there. And I grew up thinking he was really weird while my brother and my mom and I would go through and take communion. I found out later, I learned later that he just isn't religious. And I think he, he is talking to him now. He's definitely more agnostic and I'm not even sure uh, he's agnostic anymore. He seems spiritual but just maybe doesn't put a definition on it. I just respect him all the more now because he knew it was important to my mom that we be raised Christian and Catholic and he just showed up for it. You know, it wasn't something that he believed in. He'd put a suit on and he'd come with us and he'd sit through Catholic masses are pretty long. He did that every Sunday and it was just, I never knew anything different about it. I just thought maybe for some reason he didn't, uh, he didn't get up and, and take communion. So uh, I mentioned that because shortly after, probably when my high school career started, we stopped going to church. It was just something my mom didn't want to push on us when we got to an older age. She didn't really go to church anymore. I'm, I'm pretty sure she still is Catholic and still 
she still believes in that religion, but she just doesn't, she's not as active and it's not something she pushed pushed on, on my brother or I when we got older. And so I certainly drifted away from that. And I just always thought of myself as more of someone who likes to take this like scientific approach of, of, you know, it can't be proven and therefore it's not real. And um, the, the book does a great job of explaining, you know, this idea of contempt without investigation. And that's just how I was. I like to think of myself as an intellectual who is too smart for religion, but I had done absolutely zero research or zero work to even have an opinion on the topic. So uh, that's part of the humility that you learn in the program is it just is kind of taught, you know, that you're just like, uh, you just find out you don't know shit about anything. And uh, it's, it's very humbling. I mention all that because my grandfather passed away when I was younger and I was really, really close with him. And I remember having to go to his, his funeral in Massachusetts. And I remember thinking, um, this is all bullshit, had this huge church thing. There was tons of people there. It was a long Catholic mass. And I just remember thinking, this is bullshit. They're all saying, lucky him, you know, he's in, you know, I forget exactly what it was, but it was now with his God and he's in a better place. And I just remember thinking, this is total bullshit and I can't stand by this. This is just crap. He just died and, you know, we should be mad. Nobody else was. And I remember towards the end of, of, his funeral, the priest said that something along the lines of, I know many of you here might not be Catholic or might not be Christian, but it's important to remember that that John, my grandfather, he was, and he was very devout, and he went to church a lot. And so for just today only, let's hope that he was correct and that he is with the God that he chose. And I remember thinking at the end of that, like, what an asshole I am. You know, it just hit home like, I'm so self-absorbed with what I think about this that I didn't think twice about the fact that my grandfather lived his life believing this. And who's to say that he's not in heaven with God and I'm just an asshole for for just only thinking of myself. And so I don't know why that always stuck with me, it stuck with me. And I carried that somewhere down the road when I needed to, to come up to the front doors of AA and and realized that I had two choices, dying or spirituality, you know, I was like, okay, well, I remember these instances in my life where it's like, you know, just for a while, you need to just kind of be quiet about what you think, you know, and be open to the idea that there might be something else out there. And, and that, that is what I needed. Absolutely. So I'm going to jump forward a little bit. So long story, I got Decent grades in college. I graduated and I moved to Chicago. I was a single guy. I moved back to Chicago where I was originally born. And um, man, it was exactly what I thought it would be and more. And it was sort of like it was the beginning of the end for me. It was what I loved every bit about the city and kind of what it stood for as being a, a young single guy there. You know, there's so much to do as a young person. There's always people out and about. There are endless numbers of activities and and rec leagues and kickball and all sorts of stuff like that. And there's a lot of other young people there that are also starting their careers. And it's just, it's a great place to party. And it's a great place to be an alcoholic in terms of there's not a lot of judgment that goes on. I mean, there are bars that are packed until midnight or 2 a.m., every night of the week. So if you find the right crowd or you find 
the right friend groups. I mean, it's just sort of, you can fit in very easily and no one talks about the fact that in the middle of the week and you should probably not be doing it. So I, I ended up partying really hard for a long time in Chicago. I had some decent success at work. You know, I think I was in terms of being a young guy in his twenties, I was pretty successful and I made pretty good money. You know, I, I, when reading the big book for the first time, I remember so vividly the first time I read that line in Bill's story where he talks about, I have arrived. And I just absolutely love that line because it describes what I felt so perfectly. I had no care, no, no worries in the world. I was making good money. I was going to fancy bars and doing fancy things and uh, living in the hustle bustle of Chicago with taking the train every day. And I just thought that this was the life, you know, this was, this was what I had hoped I'd get to one day. It went on for quite a while like that. Not somebody who will tell you in their story that they never had a great relationship or they, they didn't, there are a lot of people who say things like, you know, drinking and partying was never really fun for me. It was always a way to to numb things. And, and to some extent, that was me. But I had a lot of fun partying. Like, I, I really did. And I didn't have a ton of consequences, all things considered. But I can tell you that it turned really bad for me. And things got worse and worse. And what I know now about alcoholism and addiction is that it starts with education and that's something I didn't have. Like I didn't know what addiction was. I didn't know what alcoholism was. I didn't know that like this idea of like having these crazy nights and then waking up and just being like, I can't wait to do that again tonight. Or like thinking about it actively, like, man, I got to get through work today so that I can go party and we can do a happy hour and we can just make these memories all over again. Like I didn't know that this thought process in my head of just desiring it uh, was really putting me on a path toward towards somewhere where I could not return. You know, when I tell my story, uh, especially I, I go to a couple men's groups, and when I tell my story to some guys there, you know, I've had so many people come up and tell me the exact same thing about my story. Where it, where it turned to me going to alcoholism had to do with me getting serious with other people. You know, I had some relationships throughout my 20s, nothing that was really that long. I think I led a lot of women on. I didn't commit to anything, kind of really enjoyed the bachelor life, but I was really willing to to date. It was something where as long as you didn't get in my way. And then I met my now wife when I was 30. And up until that time of, of when we met, I didn't have any trouble, like nothing too crazy with the law. I was always known as like, you know, you're the partier. I probably had some close calls where I was, you know, walking around the streets too drunk at night, but nothing, no, no actual tickets or any trouble. And meeting my wife, you know, I remember when we first started dating, it's one of those things I used to always do. I used to just like lay down the law of like, hey, this is me. I like to party. Do you, you know, like this is going to be part of my life. And if you want to be in this life, you have to be okay with me partying. And she was for a little while. We dated on and off for a year. And then after that, we got more serious and we decided to move in together. It has nothing to do with her. She's at no fault at all for the way that I drink or for the way that that I sort of turned to my drinking. But I can tell you that by having someone around that held me accountable or that liked to think that I needed to be held accountable, that did speed up the process for me for how I was going to drink. I didn't to say like, hey, 
I like to drink and like you knew this and this is how it's going to be. I said, okay, that's kind of BS. You know, I like to party and I just started sneaking drinks. And for me, it looked looked a lot like having a bar full of different booze, different drinks. And I would go and I would take swigs out of them when she was in the bathroom. It basically started her saying like, hey, Tim, you don't need to be making old fashions on like a Tuesday night. You know, I would do this thing to dress it up and I'd make her one and I'd spend 15 minutes making a cocktail and then we'd sit down and watch something on TV. And she just one day I remember was like, yeah, you know, we don't need to be doing this on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or whatever it was. And I just remember thinking we're in, I'm in trouble, you know, because I do need this. And so it did just start with me kind of taking random swigs and it was a it, this is a progressive and fatal disease. I know that now. I didn't know what alcoholism was, like I mentioned. You know, I didn't know that alcohol, alcoholism, I guess, in the big book, you know, described as sort of having this twofold, you know, this obsession of the mind and a craving and then an allergy when you take that first drink. But boy, did I, did I fit that description. After just a, a a couple of short months of, of taking random swigs throughout the night, it turned into like, okay, I need my own bottle. I need it separate hidden in our guest room or something. And it just was, it was all, all bets off at that point. I think I made it, I, I've looked back at the dates and tried to figure it out, but I think I made it about a year or maybe a little over maybe a year and a half of of basically hiding bottles of vodka and liquor throughout the house before I was at, at the doorstep of, of rehab and treatment. And um, things got really, really bad between she was, we were, we were then engaged uh, shortly after we started living together. So we were not married, but to anybody who, to anybody who's questioning if alcoholism is a family disease, I, I think then you haven't lived in the home with somebody who's really suffering from alcoholism and addiction, because what I did to what I continued to do to my girlfriend at that time was just nothing but manipulation and gaslighting and making her crazy all the while, just doing whatever I wanted and making her seem crazy for it. You know, I had a bottle every single day that I would try to drink half of it of. I'd try to bring some in. I'd try to beat her home from work and hide it in this place and hide it in that place. And, you know, over time, she just started finding it. She started saying, you, you know, thinking, no, you smell like booze. And I would say, no, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. I just put on hand sanitizer. You know, I'd make them some bullshit lie. And then she started finding the bottles. And I stopped trying to hide them as much. You know, I kept putting them in more obvious places, just thinking, I think I just stopped caring. I was. Um, really heading towards a bad spiritual and uh, mental place. And I mentioned that drugs are a part of my story and quickly I'll share that mostly it was benzos. It was anxiety medication and um, benzos are extremely addictive. And they, you know, I, I learned later that they actually affect a similar part of the brain as alcohol. So I was constantly going back and forth between this stuff and, um, you know, every day I was doing both to the extremes. And in terms of professional, uh, my, my, how I showed up to work, I mean, it, it was, it was okay. And then it was bad. And then it was really bad. And it was, you know, I would, it got to the point where I'd have to have a little alcohol before work. Um, I'd make it to work. I'd try to work for a couple hours. I'd take an hour lunch. 
I'd come back, I would look at my calendar and see, you know, what do I need to be here for? And then I would just leave. And it turned into waking up in the morning and drinking a little bit and then getting to work and maybe not even going in. And then it turned into just waking up and drinking and not doing anything but that around the clock. I want to share a couple of things that really, it, you know, I'm not huge on going through like crazy stories I have because I could tell those all day um, about the stuff I got into in the city, but some things that point to the, the true insanity of the disease. Um, I had, I had ran my relationship so far into the ground that we were both really, really struggling. And it, it, my wife has had some trauma in the past and that's her story to tell. So I'm not going to dive into that, but she wasn't in a great place either. I mean, she wasn't a big drinker, so alcohol was not her problem, but the way I acted around her, it was pure toxic. And, um, she had to step away for a while. Like she couldn't deal with what we were doing. And she went away for about a week. And I just remember really, really wanting to be there for her. Like I really wanted to be, to make things right. And I wanted to be the guy who could show up for her when she was in this time of stress. And I could, I could turn my relationship around and I'd put down the booze and um, you know, what I did was I, I called work and told them that I have a family emergency and that like, I need to be, I can't come in this week. And of course they have no problem when you say something like that. And in reality, I just drank the entire week. You know, I was buying half gallons of, I don't know, top shelf vodka. And I was just filling up my house with it, knowing that for once my wife wasn't going to be home and like I could drink in freedom and I remember thinking, like, this is great. Like, I'm not getting reprimanded. And it's just that crazy, crazy thinking that I had of when the people in my life need me the most, I can't even care to think about what they're going through. You know, I'm, I'm only worried about myself. And there were times that I was able to go visit her throughout that week, and I showed up under the influence. You know, I drove probably an hour each way to this spot, and I was drunk. I'm surprised they even let me in. I don't really know what I was thinking, but yeah, I mean, we, we, we held on by a thread after that. And I think I was able to hide behind the fact that everything wasn't always about me anymore. You know, it was about us and you have your stuff you're working on and I'm an alcoholic and like, I don't want to be drinking anymore. Like I was openly talking about this stuff, but I didn't really care. I didn't really want to stop drinking. And I wish I could say that 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 was when it all came to an end for me, but it wasn't, you know, I went on for another couple months, just like that, of just barely being able to get out of bed. The last thing I'll share in terms of the insanity or disease was there was, we had, we had gone through so many sessions of like, you, you know, you're an alcoholic. Okay. I know that I'm going to stop drinking. Cool. Let's clear the house. You know, we cleared all the alcohol out of the house together. It was all just this game that I was playing where I always had a pint hidden or something and um, my wife had like, a, there was like a half full bottle of, of vodka and she had hid it behind like these multiple counters. Like it was tucked away really far. And this is when we had no alcohol in the house. So I don't know when she put it back there. It could have been one of the any number of times she caught me drinking. But after a couple of weeks, I found it. You know, I was looking for whatever I could find really like a fiend and I found it. And I remember just thinking, so she knows this is there. She put it there. So whatever I drink, I have to refill it. And so what I did was I drank the half bottle of vodka 
And then every single day I would come home and I would, I filled it up with vodka again. And then I said, okay, great. I'm going to leave that there. And then by the end of the night, I needed it. So I would drink it and then I would fill it up with water half full. And then I'd come home the next day with a full bottle and I would dump the water out and I would fill it up half full where I left it and I'd tuck it away in the corners. And I did that every single day for months, just thinking one, you know, just thinking, yeah, I don't, you know, it's good now. It's great. And then I would drink it like an hour later. It was just pure insanity. And my, my wife, one day I came home and it was just out on the counter, of course, full of water. And she said, well, I see you found the vodka. And I just remember thinking in my head, like, if only you knew what me and that bottle have been through, you know, it, it is a scary, sad, sad disease. And you just don't see it coming. For me, it turned into just one day. It's okay to drink, hiding it, and the next day, I am I am an absolute slave to this, uh, to this substance and to the bottle. Moving on to how I ended up getting sober, my 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 then wedding was not happening. My wife had eventually moved out, as you could expect. She was staying with her mom. I was at the house, basically waiting for waiting for it to end because I. Um, this, when you get to a point of drinking like that, it's pretty rare that you see people go on for too long because at some point you end up in the hospital, you end up dead, or you end up in jail. And I was headed towards any one of those things. You know, I used to be taking so much medication and drinking that I was okay with dying. You know, I didn't, I wasn't suicidal. You know, I didn't, I didn't ever say like, I, I want to end this to stop the pain. So I never went that far. But what I did was I had taken so many things to even get to a state where I could sleep that I would lay my head on the pillow thinking, you know, you you very well could die tonight. And I'd doze off and I'd I'd go to sleep peacefully knowing that that would be okay. And that's a, uh, a fucking terrible place to be. But what happened was, was I just, I came to sobriety through illness. You know, I was so sick. I woke up every morning, just drenched in sweat, sweating through my sheets, throwing up. And I just was doing that every day for a month. And I thought I'm, I'm dying. And I just decided I don't want to die. You know, I don't want to die. I want to go to the hospital. And so I called my dad. Um, My fiance at the time had been living with her mom for only, it was only a couple of weeks before I ended up in the hospital. But I remember McCall, my dad and him driving from Michigan to Chicago and he was getting ready to, he would take me to detox. So we got it all set up. I told him everything. I remember that I stopped drinking the night before and then the following night I was going to detox. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to drink today because I don't know anything about the disease. I know nothing. All I know is that I'm going to go to this detox place and you can't show up there drunk. Like, that's all I thought. Like, you can't do that or else they won't let you in. Not knowing the dangers of stopping alcohol when you're on that sort of, when you're on that sort of intake. And so for anyone listening, who's, who's thinking about quitting, it's really important to seek medical attention um, in certain situations. And I think, most people, if they're being honest, will know if they need medical attention, but I had no idea. And I just rolled in there with, I don't know, 20 hours of no alcohol, maybe not that much. And I almost died. I remember getting checked in the detox and then just taking my blood pressure and immediately getting on the phone with 911 and physicians. Just basically my my blood pressure was was higher than any person should ever be and um yeah they they were freaked out you know they were asking what what was i taking and 
fortunately they had some of the medication type of benzo at the hospital uh, at the detox to give me on a short term but yeah i was in full need of, of all hands-on medical attention and I remember getting through detox and I remember just a couple days into that is when I got the big book for the first time. And, and this is sort of where my path to sobriety starts. It, it all, like I said, it all starts with education and I had no idea what an alcoholic even was. You know, I knew I wasn't somebody who said, you know, I refused to admit I was an alcoholic. Like I knew from what I was doing that I was an alcoholic and an addict. And I just didn't know what that meant. The way I was drinking, I knew I was an alcoholic, but I didn't know that. I didn't know the description of the disease. And I remember sitting in one of the detox beds and reading the big book, the beginning of it, and just thinking, you know, holy shit, they wrote this book about me. You know, they wrote this book about me. It's written to me. The doctor's opinion spoke so, so clearly to me in terms of all these things I was going through because I knew there were other alcoholics out there, but I didn't know that every single person that that had this disease to some level or to some level or another has this crazy obsession with it. You know, I had this crazy, crazy obsession with alcohol, like I described it like a fiend. It it felt like every time I took a drink, I was holding my breath until the next time I'd get another drink. I walked around this earth basically holding my breath wondering how I'm going to survive to the next place where I had it. And it was all I could think about. It just controlled me entirely. And then, you know, this, this description that the book has about, you know, the allergy of the body. I'm somebody who, you know, I'm somebody who is allergic to peanuts, like deathly allergic to peanuts. And I have so much fear around that. And so when, when the book described it as an allergy, I thought, yeah, I can relate to that because I, I'm so fearful of what what goes into my body if it's something, if it's nuts, that I could die and I carry an EpiPen around. That, you know, knowing that when I put alcohol in my body, my body just reacts in a way that most people's body doesn't do. You know, I have this desire for more and I come into everything thinking I'm going to just have this drink because I feel so terrible. And I end up drinking everything in sight. And being on this crazy bender without even remembering that all I wanted was to get rid of it. Just this like little, little ants of anxiety I was having. Uh, and I did that every single day. And I know the way the big book is written. Some people, uh, including myself have sort of issues with the style of it being so old school and being really get more geared towards, you know, men. And there's a lot of usage like that. And, and I was that way too. And, but Bill's story, the way it's written about this guy who worked in finance and found himself at this like tragic end, just the way his drinking was, it just spoke to me. I mean, I Bill's story in my in my story professionally in some way relates so much of just this idea of constantly getting getting drunk at the wrong time and not knowing what happened. I mean, it describes me perfectly. I remember when I read this book, the first part of it, I thought. I finally found what is wrong with me. They have described it so perfectly. And then you get to the part where it talks about chapter two of the book where there is a solution. And that's where I hit a wall. I said, they are certainly describing me. <laughs> this book may have been written back in the 30s and 40s, and it may know exactly what's wrong with me today, but there has to be another way. You know, I, I can't 
look at this, you know, this list of items that they want me to do in this, this spiritual life. Like I just can't do that and I'll do anything. And my stay in detox was about a week. And I remember them, the guy who was the counselor in detox, he was in the program and he said, you know, on a scale of, of one to 10, how willing are you to stay sober? Like how, how bad do you want to stay sober? And I said, of course, 10. And then he said, scale of one to 10, like how willing are you to do anything that needs to be done for you to stay sober? And I said, 10. And he looked me in the eyes and said, okay, like I've been doing this a long time. I recommend that you go to a 30 day treatment facility. We can get somewhere lined up for you tomorrow and you can head out. Like you really need this. And I just laughed. I said, you know, I'll do anything but that, you know, like I can't, I can't, are you kidding me? Like I have to go to work in a week or a couple of days. Like I have all this to take care of. I've got a mortgage payment. Like, no, I, I can't do that, but I'll do anything else. And it's just so funny. You know, that's something I've, to this day, I always ask sponsees or anyone who's looking to, to work the steps of like, you know, Hey, how willing are you to do what's needed? And it, if you give people, if you give alcoholics a scale of one to 10, I guarantee you anyone is probably going to tell you 10 because it's how our mind works. It tells us that we don't want this ever again. We can't do this ever again. And then an hour or two later, the sound of a drink just sounds so appealing. It is just a, it's a fascinating disease and it's a sad one. So, um, you know, anybody that I tell uh, in this program or anyone I tell, I should say outside of this program, when the last day that I was, that I drank was as being December 31st, everyone says, you know, oh, wow, congratulations. You know, you stopped on New Year's Eve. I mean, that's amazing. You decided you wanted to start a new year off fresh and that's when you gave it up. And it's so funny when I explain it to other people in the program that really I I relapsed on, I think, December 22nd of 2019 and and December 31st is when I was just in the hospital again. It had nothing to do with New Year's Eve. I actually don't even remember. uh, I don't remember that entire week. And so it it has nothing to... uh, has nothing to do with New Year's Eve. It's the it's the the day that I made it back and really asked for help. So I ended up relapsing after twenty some odd days of sobriety, and um, it it hit me because I was feeling amazing. You know, I'd spent years barely being able to get out of bed. Then all of a sudden, I got twenty some days of sobriety, and I w- was able to go to the gym again. Like I was feeling really good mentally and physically. And I remember it was my first day back at work and don't know what happened. I just had a drink on lunch, never went back to the office and never went back to work for 14 or some odd weeks. Like it was, that was it. And um, on December 30th, I just said, this was it. Like I was, I went exactly back to what was recommended. I went to a 30 day program in Minnesota I actually bought a one-way ticket there. Um, I drank the entire flight. I actually had called them to tell them I was coming. And they asked me a few questions and said, okay, yeah, like we'll try to get you in. Not knowing that I had to be like officially admitted. So I honestly showed up to the rehab after like a two-hour cab ride. And they were almost shocked. I mean, it was a, it was a flight was a couple hours and then a two-hour cab ride or something. And they were just shocked that I was there. You know, there was no plan in place to get me in. And fortunately, after a couple hours of, of not drinking, you know, they checked all my levels and my 
um, you know, my blood alcohol level. And they were like, yeah, you know, this person needs to come in now. Um, because if he has, you know, it, it, they, they could take some of my vitals and know that I was in serious trouble. And, um, that's when I really, I really surrendered. I have fought the program quite a bit that first month. You know, I, I, I knew all about the alcoholism and I was, I was ready to, to do what was asked of me. And it was only then that I was, you know, introduced to AA. I think detox, there might've been an AA meeting and there was a smart recovery meeting. And I, I think I sat through them, but I didn't really do anything. I had read part of the book and I was actually enjoying it, but I, I wanted nothing to do with the solution and going to rehab for me was exactly what was needed. You know, this, this unplugging was what I needed at that time to, to just get my mind healthy enough to know, to know what a path forward was. And I finally made a commitment to myself to, to get sober and to just to give it a try. I remember when I came back from, from rehab, I started going to AA meetings, figured I'd give it a shot. I didn't really work any of the steps in treatment like some people do. I think I went to a couple of the meetings, but I, I didn't, uh, I didn't really put a whole lot of effort in, but I, I knew that that was where the solution was. You know, I figured if they wrote this book about describing who I am, then I ought to give the solution a, uh, a chance. And I didn't want to do anything. And I didn't want to get a sponsor. And I, I remember going to my first couple of meetings and there were some younger guys there similar to me in age. I think I got sober at 31 or 32. And I remember I was at a young person's meeting in Chicago and there was a lot of young guys in that age range. And those in-person meetings at the time, if you're admitting that this is when your first or second meeting in AA, you pretty much got swarmed. And uh, a lot of people trying to give you their numbers and just be of service. and something about me i just said okay i remember when i when i asked the gentleman to be my sponsor who ended up being my sponsor uh he was someone totally different for me he had just given the lead he just shared his story we were nothing alike and i knew he was really serious about the program and i asked him to be my sponsor i went up to him and i told him you know hey i'm i'm ready to work the steps you know at this point my my future marriage, my relationship with my family, it all depends on it. Um, not really, at the time, not really knowing, like, I need this too. Like, I need this to to live. And I think that's important for anyone who's just wondering what their motives are. I mean, it's okay to come in and your motives will change. At least that's how it worked for me. You know, I was trying to hold on to my life, my work, my wife, my now wife. Anyways, I was trying to hold that all together. And that's why I was coming. But I changed, you know, like I learned through the program that this was a lot of soul searching being done. And I really had that desire to stay sober. My sponsor uh, was really strict and I needed that. I really needed that. You know, he had a list of requirements for me, totally reasonable things, but at the time seemed ridiculous. You know, some of which were calling him every day at the same time. So we had like a blocked off 15, 20 minute time that I called him every day at that time. And it was a time that worked for both of us. Uh, he wanted to see me in a couple of meetings a week with him, along with going to other meetings throughout the week. So I made sure I was seeing him at least a couple of times a week and I was working the steps with him one night a week. And so it was important for me to not be working during this. Like I was doing recovery all day, every day. My sponsor 
told me later that my, my, my sponsor then told me later that I was the only person and he sponsors every time, as long as I've known him, he's always had three to four sponsees. He told me that I was the only person who ever walked up to him and said, I want to work all 12 steps and I'm ready to do it and actually did it. He said, no one's ever done that. And I find that shocking because of all people, you know, I, I consider myself the you know, the helpless type. Like I, I, I have a bad case of alcoholism is what I, I like to think. And, um, I have no idea what it is in me that made me to say that I wanted to work all these steps. And I just, I really did it to the best of my ability and honestly, and he was someone that believed in working the steps quickly. He was always wanting me working on stuff. He'd give me deadlines on like, for example, my fourth step. And so I know we're probably getting close on time here. So I do want to just talk a little bit about the steps and then I'll wrap it up. But the steps were, were everything for me. You know, I was willing to do the work. And so, you know, when I was given certain timeframes on, on steps, like I took it really seriously and I really reaped the benefits. Like my life got really good, really quick. And I know that doesn't happen for everyone. And I feel very lucky because it did for me. And I just, I learned so much about myself from doing the steps and this concept I had of like, you know, Hey, everything needs to be done perfectly. It just was not true. Like I just needed to keep my feet moving and I'd have another chance to kind of go through these things again. I wasn't, I wasn't, I was doing them honestly and I was being thorough, but I didn't need to spend every, you know, I didn't need to spend extra time working on everything to totally understand and grasp a full concept of, of the step. I think it was, it was easier for me to look at what was in front of me and just keep moving forward. I talked about my, issue with my leg when I was younger, because from doing the fourth and the fifth step, my fifth step where I explained, I told everything to my sponsor and and I, I worked a fourth step thoroughly. Like I had never told anyone about that other than my parents and my brother, not even my fiance had I talked to about that or previous girlfriends or anyone who got close enough to even like nobody had I talked to about it. And as soon as I sort of opened up about some of these things that I just carried around forever, I just felt this weight lifted off of me. It wasn't immediate, but I can tell you the next time someone asked me a question about it, I was just talking about it without even realizing it. Or when I was sharing in a meeting about what's bothering me, I could just freely talk about these things that otherwise I just couldn't. And I I know I jumped ahead on that step, but I did and do really struggle with the God part of the program. I have always I've always struggled with this concept of of if there is a God and if so, what is it? I think I think to some point today I still question it, but I know that my understanding and my ability to to know that I don't have the answer has has worked. It's worked enough. So if you're someone who's scared of the God part of this program, me too. Like I've had so many resentments towards AA because you know, for example, they tell you it's not a spiritual program, but then there are like verses from the Bible that people recite at meetings or, you know, for example, like the seven step prayer that we have to say, like, you know, I sat down in the Starbucks and said it with my sponsor and it starts with my creator. And I used to say like, hey, I thought we could think whatever we wanted in this program about a higher power. You know, it doesn't have to be my creator, does it? And I've given myself in these I get myself in these little arguments with mainly with myself and my sponsor would just laugh at me. You know, it was just one of these things where 
I had to, I had to have a problem with something, you know, if I couldn't understand it, it was easier to put up a fight than to just let things go. And all I can say is what worked for me was getting some basic level of understanding that, you know, I'm not the center of the universe. And if I think alcoholism is, is fascinating, I mean, you can look at the universe and you could spend the rest of your life trying to understand something like that. And, and you would just be mind blown. And so I, I was able to find some basic level of just, you know, maybe there's something out there and I don't know what it is, but I, I feel this magnetic pull towards the rooms of AA. There is a group of people that want me to get sober and want me to do well, and they don't even know me. And I, I rode that wave for a long time and it just worked. And once I finished my fifth step, I did, you know, in the short period after feel this massive sense of relief and I didn't feel it right away, but I just noticed I just was a little bit lighter. And for someone like me who's stuck in their head 24 seven, it, it was a major weight lifted just to be able to, to walk around and, and go to, go to bed a little bit easier at night. I I've kind of been using this thing with my, my leg as like a central part of this story is because I'm, I'm learning so much about what I thought was true and do making an amends to my family and, and doing these things. Like I brought it up to my mom that I had a lot of resentments around. We just got into this long, deep conversation after my amends. And I told her like, Hey, you know, I carried around a lot of these resentments thinking like you guys were honest with me. And like, I had this thing built up that like, nobody wanted to talk to me about it. And I was just this struggling kid who nobody was there to, to really explain it to. And I just, you know, I always felt different. Like I just, that's how I thought 100%. I believe that was the truth. And my mom was just told me like, it couldn't have been farther from the truth. You know, my dad sat down with me and was like, we took you to like 10 different doctors. We tried to get you help in so many ways. And you just refused it every time. You wouldn't see anyone. You wouldn't talk to anyone. You know, you wouldn't, you didn't want any help. And I remember after making that amends in the months and weeks that followed, I remember thinking like, this major resentment I've carried around for 30 years is based on a lie. You know, I thought these things were one way and they weren't. And I was totally okay accepting their explanation as the right one. So I started to use that throughout my life of like, you know, anytime I think something is a certain way, I'm able to realize maybe that's not what was going on. You know, like maybe that's not the true case. And there's just so much discovery that happens in working the steps that I think that's the way to sobriety. I do enjoy going to meetings and I go to a ton regularly and I just love, for example, listening to this podcast and other things. Like I just really enjoy being around recovery based conversations. But for me, what changed my life was working the steps. And, you know, shortly after I got sober, my wife put back on our engagement, you know, after a few months we were engaged again. Uh, I don't think we ever technically stopped being engaged, but uh, I had proposed somewhere along the line before my drinking had gotten too bad. We had a very long engagement of at least a few years, but we got married July of 2020. We got married. Yeah. So we got married when I was only seven months sober. And um, yeah, I remember thinking like, how the hell am I going to have a wedding? Yeah, like, how am I going to have a wedding where I don't drink? Like, how is that ever going to happen? And I remember talking to some people in the program, specifically one woman who was a really big help to me. And, and she said, 
you have no idea what your mindset is going to be like at your wedding. You know, you're sitting here seven months sober, probably at the time planning a wedding. And you have no idea what you're going to feel like at that time. And I remember just thinking, she's right. That's a long ass time away from now. Because what we did was we had the wedding a year from when we actually got married at the courthouse. So, you know, by the time our wedding rolled around, I had no thought of a drink. I was so comfortable being around alcohol at our wedding that I I could have never imagined that was a place I would ever be at. And there was a moment at our wedding when someone was was too drunk and they they were far too drunk. I think they'd been drinking all day and they started creating a scene. They ended up getting kicked out. It was a pretty small venue and a remote location and the police got involved. And I just remember thinking, you know, to most people, this would put an asterisk on their wedding or this would be a major issue in their wedding. But it, it just wasn't. It wasn't me. And there was actually a moment where my wife and I were both in tears crying. And the cameraman randomly caught it for whatever reason. He was filming us. But we were just talking amongst each other. And she was saying something along the lines of, I'm so proud of you because this is not you like this could have been you at our wedding and now this is us we're having such a good time we're so like i'm so proud of you and that'll be something i cherish and remember for the rest of my life because you know my amends to my family and to the people in my life you know they only meant so much when i was making it uh at that moment like me showing up in their life is everything it's absolutely everything it it's those times like that that I can look back and say, like, I, I something has touched my life, and I don't know what it is, and I don't need to, I don't need to define it, and I'm still going to be a work in progress. You know, I I still have a lot of things that I'm working on, specifically right now. You know, you'll hear in, in the meetings people talk about the promises of AA, or or uh, realistically, they're they're the ninth step promises that you hear read so much, but uh, really, there's just so many promises throughout the book that you will get, you know, if you work these steps or that's what's, that's what's told to us in the book. And I I've received so many of them, but they're not forever. These things I can have periods of time where, um, you know, I seem selfless and I care so much about doing things for others. And right now I just have a ton of fear around economic insecurity. We just welcomed our first child to the, to the world on March 1st. And Things in my industry have been become really difficult and financing has been tight from what it used to be. So, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in my head wondering what the, the next 15 to 20 years of my life is going to look like. You know, as I'm saying that now, it's just it's just more of me not being present and getting outside of today because I know that I am okay today and financially we are okay and whatever happens, I have no doubt that we are going to be okay. I know that with the tools in AA, I can get myself to that healthy place. I can get myself relatively quickly to a place of serenity. It just doesn't mean that I'm always going to stay there. And I've noticed that throughout life. I'm not always serene, but I know that I have the tools now to get me to that place. So I'm really, really grateful, Terry. You asked me to come on. I have been listening to your show for a very long time. And... Uh, for someone like myself with a new child, I I can't get to as many in-person meetings as I would like to. And 
I do really rely on like some online stuff when I can. And I love listening to your podcast at my desk on Thursday mornings. Like I pop mm-hmm. it on uh, when I'm reading my emails and it's, uh, it's amazing. So thank you. Mm. Thank you, Tim. I really enjoyed your story. I have, I have some thoughts. You talked so lovingly about the big book and I, and you weaved it through your story the whole way through. And I appreciated that because I have a high respect for the big book. I have hmm, two things that are going to stay with me forever. So I'm just going to remind you of your words and the listeners. So this is paraphrasing a little bit, but I'm going to go back and properly quote you. But you said, just for a while, be quiet about what you think you know. Mm. Just for a while. Be quiet about what you think you know. And that is like advice I can use every single day. Every single day. The other one that really resonated with me was the pain and sorrow of if you only knew what me and that bottle had been through. (laughs) Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's not something that I talk about a lot. My wife probably will listen to this at some point, I think she was coming. She knows what I'm doing. So I'm sure she's probably going to ask me if it's okay. And I'll probably let her, um, but I've never talked to her about that. Just, just the craziness of the disease, just freaking out. It, it is, it is really crazy. And I wish I had like a day count on, on how many times I did that. It, it must've been at least a couple months. So at least 60 plus times I, I came home thinking the same thing. Mm. I was so clever. It's just, uh, it, it truly is insanity man, to not have to live like that anymore. And, you know, I think sharing this stuff is so important because to not have to live like that anymore is all I wanted out of this program. You know, I didn't want a kid or marriage or I'd move back to Michigan. I didn't want any of that. You know, I wanted to like stop waking up thinking I was going to die and stop going to bed thinking, okay, it's okay if I die tonight because of what I've just put in my body. And then waking up again thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die. I can't ever do this again. Yeah, it's just like, it's it's a miserable way to live. And I I mentioned it earlier. I thought I was the only person who lived like that. I knew there were people who drank alcohol around the clock like me, but I thought I, I, I thought that I was the only person who had that sort of mental obsession going on. And I'm in a place in downtown Chicago where there's recovery everywhere. And I had no idea. Um, You know, if we can, maybe teach younger people what it, what it truly means to be addicted to something. Um, maybe they might be able to look out for the signs, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. We can certainly teach the people that are in our, like our children. Yeah. I think that that's the struggle I have with anonymity. It's like, well, I want to be anonymous, mm-hmm. but at the same time, my only <laughs> example of an alcoholic, my definition of an alcoholic was not what we are. It was definitely inaccurate. And so it didn't qualify me as one. It says a bad name, but hopefully with social media, this next generation and with all these sobriety movements, it'll mend, amend over time. Yeah. Sober is cool these days for sure. I didn't necessarily get sober for myself. I wanted my boyfriend, now husband, I wanted I wanted this life. So I didn't do it for me because I didn't have self-love yet. And you talked about that. You said that you didn't know you needed it too. 
and your mm-hmm. motives changed over time. And I think that that's important to call out for the newcomers is just get in the room and want it for whatever reason you want it. Cause we do hear, if you don't want it for yourself, you're not going to do right. it. It's like, just want it for any goddamn reason and do the work. <laughs> and eventually you'll find some self love and you'll want it for yourself too. Yes. Yes. I'm so on board with what you're saying. I mean, it, what what gets you there is now it's important. What brought me into the rooms of AA or what got me to the, the willingness stage of, of, or the stage of willingness to be able to, to do these things I didn't want to do, like that doesn't matter to me. I had it for a short period of time and I ran with it and not everyone gets it. So if you have this desire to, to, to get sober, I don't really, the motive is kind of not important up front. Um, I think ultimately, if you're working things for a while and you realize that you don't really want sobriety, it's not going to stay. But I think that I certainly developed, a, you know, once I got a taste of what my life could be like, like I knew that I didn't want to give this precious thing up. And yeah, I mean, you know, if there's, if there's one more thing that I can share, um, because I did want to mention Jeez. it and I didn't mention it earlier. So the the main thing that I, the, the one thing I forgot to talk about that I wanted to share was that I had mentioned earlier in my story about how I strongly believe that addiction is a family disease because I watched what it, it did to the people around me. I did want to share that working the steps for me and getting sober for me has created such beautiful relationships with the people around me, you know, in the same way that I tore my family down. I've watched it regrow to something so much more beautiful than what it was prior. My wife is like flourishing right now and she's killing it as a mother and, you know, everything's going great. And she gave up drinking because she just realized like, yeah, Tim and I had really bad things happen when we were drinking. Primarily it was always Tim, but like a lot of bad interactions happened when we were drinking. And so she stopped drinking and like, we have a really beautiful life right now and she's in so much better of a place now than where, where we were. I, I can't help but think that the program and finding sobriety and being able to openly talk about what's going on in our lives and what we've gone through, it, it, the family heals with sobriety and with the program. I guess that's what I'm trying to get across. I'm watching other people in my life become very happy too. And not that they wouldn't have been happy without me, but, you know, knowing that I'm not, you know, a soul draining influence on their life, people heal as well. So that's all I wanted to say. Well, you probably don't feel like it, but you explain that very well. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope so. You'll hear it again and be like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense because I remember thinking sobriety looks boring. I don't understand what these promises are. I can only think of monetary promises, but the way you explained how the damage done when we're drinking is so painful, but then the beauty is it swings the pendulum the other way. It flourishes and no, you don't get to take credit for it, but you get to be a part of it because you're not bringing them down. You're bringing them up and you're being an example and we learn from each other. So you are, bringing them up by, by working this thing in your everyday life. And I can tell from just your share and all the wisdom that you're doing this deal and you're probably bringing it to every single conversation you have with every family member. 
Right. Yeah, I, I definitely am. Um, and you can uh, you can cut this this last part, or if you want to, if you want to add it or uh, or not. But you know, I, I I when I left Michigan, my sponsor told me that he wasn't going to work with me anymore. Now, the guy who I credited for getting me sober and for taking me to this place, you know, he said. I need you to find a new sponsor. He's like, you know, I work face to face with people and like, I'm always trying to help newcomers and like get them through the steps. And like, I've seen the benefits in your life. And like, I think you're ready to go find a new sponsor when you move to Michigan. And I was so pissed because I felt like I owed this guy a lot. And I felt like I was good partially because of him. It's just crazy. This program being everywhere because I, I knew one contact in Ann Arbor who's in the program. And I texted him like, Hey, I need a sponsor. I'm coming here and I don't have a sponsor. And he just sent me a text with a guy who connected me with. And I've had such an amazing relationship with my new sponsor over the last um, two plus years. I've been under this, this second sponsor and it's different. Everything's different about it. You know, he's not all over my ass every day because he knows that like I can be, you know, remotely accountable. Like I, I check in with him quite a bit, you know, a few times a week. We are always working on something. We go to similar meetings, you know, and it's just, it's not the same level of attention I had and it works really well. And I just think that, man, I, you know, it's just what you don't know, you don't know, you know, and I just didn't know that things were going to work out and they always have. So that is one part that I, I, I do owe my current sponsor a lot and I didn't talk about him um, as much during the story because, you know, my path to getting a little bit of sobriety under my belt is where most of the trouble came from. So, Well, we can leave it in there for him. <laughs> okay. Okay. But I mean, to your, to like adding some, 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 we'll say, mm, adding to your story there at the end, the idea that we don't, we don't know what the universe's plan is for us and stuff happens that pisses us off, but it works out so well. And that's the whole notion of accept and surrender and trust. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, like it's another one of those weird things we learn in the rooms is you don't have to micromanage your life. There's the freedom of not having to hold on to secrets, the freedom of not having to worry and live in fear about making mistakes and doing things right. And like, there's such a freedom that comes with this thing called sobriety. You don't, you've never had that freedom. You don't know until you've experienced it through the steps and the book and the program and the fellowship. And it's hard to define why life is so much better when we're sober, but you did that a little bit throughout your story, you know, and your example of, of being forced to a new sponsor. Yep. Yeah, it's just kind of that idea. Like, you just don't know what what you're going to need or what you're actually going to want until you have it. Um, So, final question for the newcomer out there listening. What message would you like to leave with them? Ooh, uh, it's just so important to know that you're just not alone. This disease is such a lonely, lonely disease, and it it is all in your head from, for the most part, you know, this idea that I'm alone and how am I going to get better? And I have problems that no one else has, you know, that's how I thought. And the reality is, is when you come in to these rooms and just be open about that, you'll find that there are so many people suffering from the same thing who have done some, some things that are not 
too difficult and it's made their life wildly different. You just have to be willing to talk about it uh, and be open to, to their solution. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.